that time of the week again. It's Flat Out RC podcast time, the podcast where we talk all things radio control flight. We're talking radio control planes, helis, and drones. My name is Andrew Sill. I'm coming to you from the land down under in Melbourne, Australia, with a funny voice. If you're a regular listener, you can probably tell that my voice doesn't sound great, and that is because I am battling a cold. I think I've got over the hump. You know when you have a cold, you have that peak, and then... Everything just starts to improve after that. It's not COVID. I have tested and it's not COVID, but I'm okay. Now, the good news is we have a special guest. and The special guest is Ross Bathy. And uh, I recorded that interview when my voice was okay. So you, I'll try not, to, try not to subject you to too much of this voice at the moment. But Ross Bathy, a, a master builder, working with composites a lot, has some big planes. We're going to talk all about that. But before we do, let's have a look at what's been on my mind. Well, as I said, I'm not going to subject you to my voice for too much, but I just want to talk about uh, some of the results. Uh, it's been a busy weekend that's just passed with um, two big events, the Australian IMAC National Championship and also the Tucson Aerobatic Shootout where we had a, a number of Australians there. Now, I don't have all the results from the IMAC Nationals. I know that uh, that uh, Joey Tavera, who we've had on the podcast, took out BASIC at his first competition. Good job by Joey. I also know that Harrison Ritter won intermediate or sportsman, uh, one of those two. Uh, I know that Scott Barney won unlimited, but I think that was no contest because nobody else was in the category. But uh, the others, I'm not too sure. I know Stevie Melkman came third in advanced. So there's a few gaps there. I'm trying to find the results, but um, they're not really published. But so well done to everybody. Uh, for, for anybody listening overseas, we've we've had a lot of rain in the south east corner of Australia. We have to have a lot of flooding in a lot of country towns. Rivers are overflowing, and the effort to get to the IMAC Nationals, which was held in uh, southern New South Wales, was, was a bit of a battle for many. Uh, a lot of detours taking place to get around floodwaters. So. Uh, a good effort to, to make that event work. And, and surprisingly enough, the weather was actually okay. Uh, a lot of rain before the event, but uh, at the actual event, the blue skies are out. If anybody's following the Flat Out RC Instagram page, you would have seen uh, some of the shots there. That uh, Harrison Ritter, who I made an honorary Flat Out RC member for the weekend, he was my correspondent taking uh, sending me some photos and stuff like that. So big thank you to Harrison Ritter. And well done on uh, his awards that he, he got another award for young up-and-comer or something like that. So Harrison Ritter is a, is a name to keep an eye out on the uh, aerobatic scene. Then over to Tucson. Tucson was an interesting. We had, uh, from an Australian perspective, all the guns were there from around the world, you know, the likes of Andrew Jeske and Gernot Brookman, um, uh, Jason Schulman, Spencer Norquist, Sasha Ciccone from Italy, um, Santiago uh, Santiago Perez, uh, a lot of different competitors in that, that top echelon. From Australia we had Riley Sills, Ash Carter, Aaron Gall and I think Stephen Gregg, who's pretty much an Aussie, is a New Zealander, but we'll, we'll claim him. Uh, in Unlimited, the top level, Aaron Gall was there, and he gee, did a good job. Big shout out to Mr. Gall. Uh, I'm looking now at the final results for the IMAC component. Uh, Bryant Mack took it out, followed by Andrew Jeske. Gerno Brookman and then Aaron Gall in fourth. That is a monster effort. Like to, we're talking about some big names there. You know, Andrew Jeske's been like 
top three, I think, in F3A. Gurno Brookman's won almost everything there is. Uh, and Aaron, Aaron Gale. So big congratulations to Aaron for that performance. Uh, so we had Bryant Mack first, Andrew Jeske second, Gurno Brookman in third, Aaron Gale in fourth, Jason Schulman in fifth, Sash Ciccone in sixth, Spencer Norquist in seventh, Santiago Perez in eighth, Matthew Stringer in nine, Kurt Kollig in tenth, Stephen Gregg. Stephen Gregg, he was in Unlimited as well, in eleventh place, and Alex Dryling uh, in twelfth. Then in the uh, freestyle component, because there's also a freestyle component, if I can get my my computer to my phone to work so I can see the results. Freestyle is interesting because um, Jace Ducey was there competing in the freestyle component and uh, he was pipped at the post by Spencer Nordquist. So no doubt Spencer put in an awesome effort to beat one of the world's best pilots in, in Jace Ducey. who came second, Santiago Perez, Bryant Mack, Still a great performance by Bryant to, to finish fourth in the freestyle, so he's he's really flying well. And Gurno Brookman in fifth, Sasha Jaconi in sixth, Luca Bauman in seventh, Harold Corriat, well done in eighth, Jorge Berra Jr. ninth, Matthew Stringer in tenth, Adi Kochav in eleven, uh, Nick Sharping in twelve, Brian Christmas in thirteen, and Aaron Gall. I heard he had a mishap in the freestyle. I don't know what happened, but um, no doubt um, he probably would have scored a bit higher. So... Uh, but anyway, good effort to everybody. I tell you what, some really big names there on the scene. So well done to everybody who competed at the Tucson Aerobatic Shootout and also the IMAC Nationals. Uh, I think there was about 35 people or something attended the event, something like that, which uh, IMAC in Australia is really moving head in leaps and bounds um, under the leadership of the one and only Michael Andrusik. Um Wait a second, do I have the results? Oh, wait a second, I do have results. Let me just quickly share some of the results. Joey Taver won basic from uh, Ricardo Bertuna. Craig Brister in third. Uh, Honourable mentions to my mate Gavin Sexton in seventh. And uh, Tony Wilson, well done. Top 10, or well, 10th position. Um, I think it's probably his first comp or second comp. Sportsman was taken out by Andy Middlecoat, followed by Cameron Sexton. It was a do or die battle between the two of them. Very, very close score, so well done to both of them. And Ant Sisley in third place, really performing well, Ant is. He's been very consistent. Ben Ristick was up there as well in fourth. Uh, so well done. Um, some good effort there. In intermediate, Harrison Ritter from Brian Stenberg and then followed by Michael Hobson, Robert, Rob Barbudo and Simon Ventvogel. So um, no, that would have been hotly contested as well. The That, that intermediate sector was, was gee. In advanced, uh, Adam Goulding uh, took it out from Michael Andrusik, followed by Stephen, Stevie Melkman and then Darren Mecklem. I believe Darren lost a plane. Uh, sorry to hear that. And then, of course, Scott Barney took out Unlimited. So the results did come in. Again, Harrison Ritter, thank you for sending me the results just in time. Okay, you've had enough of my voice. Let's keep on moving. My favourite time of the podcast is where we get to talk to a guest. And this week's guest is uh, Ross Bathy, a, a relatively well-known name down in my neck of the woods. Um, I know Ross as a guy that likes flying gliders. And, of course, the owner of this massive Bill Hempel Pawnee. If, if you've been to an event in in Victoria, you've probably seen Ross's big, big Pawnee. So we're going to talk about that. Um, we'll talk a lot about... Uh, building because that's what Ross Ross really loves doing and, and generally everything he builds is pretty big there's nothing really small so 
Let's get into it. Here's my chat with the one and only Ross Bathy. Well, on this week's episode of the Flat Out RC podcast, we have a gentleman that's relatively well known down here in Australia, and he's known for one thing, really big model planes. His name is Ross Bathy. Ross, thanks for joining me. G'day. How's it all going? Going well. We've had a, we've had a few technical glitches, haven't we? But we're back on track now. We've, we've tried the internet. Now we're back onto mobile phones. It's all going well. So it's good to have you. No, thanks for having us. As I mentioned, Ross, you, you, you're pretty well known around uh, our neck of the woods down here in uh, in Melbourne. Um, but I don't know a lot about your story, but I'm going to find out, which I, that's what I always enjoy doing, and lots of pe- other people will as well. Where did your journey in aero modelling begin? Well, back in 1980, my dad uh, took up the hobby and got me interested in uh, in what was going on. And six months later, I took up the hobby as well. And it's, it's been it's been a long part of my life so far. Okay, so it goes back to 1980. Yeah, yeah. There's been a lot of really um, a lot of really good influential people along the way uh, in my journey. I started with uh, the Lillardale Club LDMFA. Yeah. Um, flying a lot of power, and it, it, it got bigger and bigger, and kept going. And I then started. Um, uh, I started calling as a as a young bloke. I started calling for uh, for Tom Wickers and knocking around with him. And I really have my love for big stuff from Tom. He uh, he was making big stuff way back in the day with uh, you know the likes of David Law Senior and and so on and their influences and Hayden Hampson and um, it, it's just it's grown from there as a natural um, progression, I guess. Well, you have progressed now. Those those that first plane. What was your first plane that you flew? Uh, first plane was an Aeroflight Hustler Mark III. It was bright yellow. It had the tail plane underneath. Had the upgraded aileron wing kit that came from uh, Dick Steele. In um, it was he was in Croydon from memory. Um, and uh, yeah, we kind of went from there. I did my first landing on it. Nice big long landing approach, followed by a fence. <laughs> but you know. We kept going, and every every Sunday was our flying day. And you know, Dad and I go off, and you know, get out there, come down through the mountain, go through the cutting in Croydon, where you could, uh, or you could see with the you know, telegraph poles poking out through the top. And uh, by the time the fog would clear in the morning, and everybody would fire up, and we'd fly until you know two, three o'clock in the afternoon, and go home. And that was that was our Sunday. You mentioned the Aeroflight Hustle, and a question came to mind, which I've never asked before, was like. What was your your hobby shop of choice back then? Oh, back in the day, well, Dick Steele, we used to do a lot with. Uh, there were Flight One models back then. ABC had a very big part. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember quite a few Friday nights as a family. You'd go off out for the family, and you know, to be uh, calling to ABC while the family went off to the video store, or it was to um, uh, Hawthorne Hobbies with uh, with Cliff, and uh, in fact, even before Cliff. Uh, you know, my brother used to race RC cars at the time and was doing quite well through, um, used to be a hobby shop in Mitcham. Uh, Jeff Owen used to run it. Can't remember the name of it. But, uh, you know, so we've sort of zigged and zagged through the hobby over the years. Um, and then going from uh, going from power, moving into, into Flying Glider with the Barms Club, um, I was a member with them for quite a lot of years and, and thoroughly enjoyed my time with them. Where, where was their field? It was, I know they've moved just now, but where was the original field, the Varms field? Well, for me, it was always High Street Road and Cathy's Lane, uh, which has now become the soccer field. Um, but we we travel all over the country. You know, it was uh, 
one weekend you'd be flying Aerotow out at Swan Hill and the next weekend you'd be flying down at, at Cape Shank or Flinders or Phillip Island, um, you know, um, Kilcunda, Ridge Road. They were always popular spots. And, you know, then uh, I got to see uh, John Gottschalk's Elfie, you know, big yellow T-bird as a mate would call it. And that was the one that got me in, interested in flying scale gliders. And uh, down the path, you know, knocking around with Tom Wickers and calling for him with his Spitfires and all that kind of stuff, um, it really, the bug to go bigger, a bit hard. You know, I remember seeing uh, Matt and Paul Chernike flying GBs. I remember seeing his first uh, black and yellow Z flying at Shepparton at the Mammoth. And uh, it blew me away by this stuff. And by that point, the, you know, I started flying quarter scale and getting interested in aerotail and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, um, it's funny, I've just I've just been given back my first big scale model, and it was a Monty it was a Monty Tyrrell Torsman uh, Norseman built in 1974. Oh really? And it's still here, and it's still got his name inside it. Oh, and cool. it's uh, it is cool, you know. That was my that was my first big scale model. Am I correct in saying that you're pretty much into gliders and? planes associated with gliding? Look, they are. I mean, back in the day flying at Lillardale, I was getting into flying pattern, and a couple of my influences uh, talked me out of flying pattern, and I started flying scale. Oh, really? And scale was always it. If it looks like a plane, it, it's got my stamp of approval. Um, I don't know. It's just it's, it's one of those things, and it's, uh, it's grown and evolved. You know, the getting into flying bigger and bigger scale gliders um, has then moved in building tow planes as well and 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 zigged and zagged down that path over time. Um, and then, uh, I don't know, I got my, uh, moving on many years, I, I was I was fortunate enough to, uh, well, I, I finished my trade, um, did a lot of different things in between, and then uh, culminating in, in Ten plus years working at Boeing, building seven eight seven, building really big model aeroplanes. <laughs> yeah, actually, Man, they are. Uh, huge. just a, a question on that. Well, like because Boeing here, they were doing parts for wing parts and stuff, weren't they? Yeah, so uh, Boeing in Australia now makes and specialises in uh, trailing edge flight controls. So the program I worked on was seven eight seven. I worked on the inboard flap uh, in every single stage from um, when I started, it was build number 16. Uh, when I finished, and I, I finished up, you know, 10 years, two months, so many days later um, with a redundancy package, um, it was 1178. Yeah, that was the last one I, that was the last one I spanned, you know, anything on. Um, and it was great. It was um, a really interesting program to get involved in. Um, you got to, see a problem and find a solution for it. And often the best solutions for the problems came from the shop floor. Did, do you think that building model aircraft helped in, in some of that problem solving? Absolutely. It, um, everything's, I, I love the challenge of, okay, I want to go and make this. How am I going to engineer it out? How am I going to make it work? How can I make it uh, cleaner, tidier, um, smarter, work smarter? Um, and it actually goes both ways because, uh, you know, uh, uh, going right back, um, 
My friend Tom once said to me, you should do pattern making. It'll make you a much better modeler and you'll learn how to make some really cool stuff. And he was absolutely right. So that's that's been my backbone uh, of my, you know, my trade background and learning stuff, you know, playing with composites, playing with timber, learning about wood grains, learning about uh, different glues, what they do, how they work, and thinking about, well, how do you make it from a blank sheet of paper and how do you basically reverse engineer any of it um, to, to make your thing? So within that, it's, okay, so you've got to think about you've got your design on a bit of paper. You've got to allow for your shrinkage rates for your resins at every every single gate. What's the final product going to be made out of? I'm going to make allowances for that. Is it going to come out of the mould? Um, and that's in itself has been its own its own adventure along the way as well. Do you think with one of those, um, with you know, for example, trying to make sure that the the product comes out of the mould? Do you think it's just a trial and error thing and an experience thing, or is it something that you can read up on and sort of nail it pretty quickly. It's, it's a mixture. It's a mixture. Um, I mean, for me, playing with moulds and and doing that stuff is all pre-internet. So we're at that crossover point. You know, when I was an apprentice, I remember the first the first windows being released uh, as the, the starting point. So for me, it was learning about moulds and stuff. Um, some of it was through the hobby uh, where, I'd you know, I'd, I'd seen stuff that, that you know Tom had made or, or what have you, and I talk to, I talk about Tom Wickers a lot because he's a he's been a great mate. He's been a really big influence in my life all the way through. You know, I met Tom when I was eight years old, and it was it was uh, action man hanging off the roof, hanging on you know with his arms over the leading edge of the wing and a parachute that I'd made on his back, yeah. and that was my introduction to Tom Wickers, and he was the guy that flew it and he made it work, and I've taken a lot from him in that regard that. You have a problem, and he's always been a guy that can solve problems. And you get a mechanical issue, you need to sort it out, and you find a way around it. And the same thing works with modelling. It's it's a real, um, I don't know, it's a buzz when you get it to work. And you, you do have failures on the way, and you learn a lot. Um, you know, from just all, all sorts of stuff like that. And you, you take information from all different walks of life. Um even the guy you absolutely can't stand on the flight line has something to offer. You just got to work out what it is. That's the problem, though. If they if they really annoy you, you might not want to hang around them long enough to to, to get to it. But well, you suppose... know, but in 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 today's world, they publish stuff, and you get to read about how some people do things. You go, "What a great idea! How can I apply that to what I'm doing?" Or you have a problem to sort out and you go, hang on, he did it that way. Well, what if I did this and, and you do that? And I, that's how I get my outcome. Yeah. Um, that stuff's been really cool. And I, I love being able to look at this stuff and, and see how you apply it, how you invent it. Um, you know, how somebody else fixes a problem and you go, well, okay, I'll, I, I don't mind that, but if I did this with it, then I get that outcome and it does exactly what I want it to do. See, one of the, one of the things that I definitely believe is that I do believe that we aero modelers are very similar in our behaviours. And I think that part of that behaviour is that we really enjoy the journey of discovery, not just the end result. So uh, I'm a problem solver. Someone gives me a problem and I'm going to try to work out an answer straight away, you know. Um, you know, in my work life, I always say one of the most important questions you can ask somebody if you're a manager is, well, what are you going to do? 
and I've always got an answer. Well, okay, this is what I'm going to do because this is the problem and I've worked it out. And I think that 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 journey of discovery really keeps us engaged. You know, like I, I'm not flying very often at the moment. I am injured and whatever, but every day I'm seeing something and I'm learning something and I'm and I'm enjoying oh, that yeah. part of it as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I see absolutely. your Facebook posts actually, and I get inspired by the Facebook posts to keep keep a track of what you're uh, what you've been building and stuff like that. And, and that's you know it's another aspect of the hobby. That's, so that's really nice because that's exactly what it's all about. It's um if you can get someone to pick up a bit of bolster, a bit of fiberglass, and have a go, that's exactly what it's about. Um, you know, it's it's funny. An old a late friend of mine, Dave Roberts, he um. They had a philosophy that if you can get kids interested at an early age, it's something they're going to remember for the rest of their life. So Dave always had this had this idea about you know Woody and um, Woody and the crew flying in his aeroplanes, and that's the reason why my porno flies with a skeleton. Yeah, well, I get a real buzz when kids come up and they they open, you know you open the window and they look at the skeleton and they go oh that's really cool and you go push the button on top of his head and listen to what he's got to say. Yeah. And he'd always poke out and he's, well, if he had a tongue, his tongue would hang out and his jaw opens up and he yells some abuse at you of one sort or another. And the kids love it. That's what you need. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a real, it's, it's a kick seeing that kind of stuff happen and seeing the interaction that they get with it, you know. Um, it's been a heck of a lot of fun. Well, let's talk about this poor knee, right? Um, because yeah. it is an iconic model really on the hobby scene down here. Um, you know, when, when you bring that out and I've taken numerous photos of it, at, you know, Shepherd and Mammoth and I think Packenham, I may even take some photos of it. Let's just, for the, for the listeners that may not, but we've got international listeners too, Ross, tell us a bit about this Pawnee and starting with the size so we can just start getting that picture into our minds. Okay. Um, so many, many years ago, a gentleman by the name of Bill Hempel, uh, started making really big kits. It was well known around the world. And I got shown a pre-production, some drawings and sketches and what have you from Bill. And the first batch of kits came in in the country and it was built to 46% scale, right? So it's just a a fraction shy of half scale and it's kind of become my new favourite scale. So the Pawnee... When I first made it or put it together, it was an ARF, right, straight up. It was film covered. It was all white. I was assured it would have plenty of power for tumming with uh, with a a 222cc flat four, which I happen to have left over from a a motor glider that I did something nasty with. And uh, That must have been a big glider. (laughs) It's a big motor. It was it was it was well the the motor glider is just under five meters. Yeah. It weighed thirty kilos. That was my my Schwarzer motor glider. Okay, yeah. I had a I had a gray a gray matter moment, and uh, it's sitting in the naughty corner waiting to be uh, yeah. uh, rebuilt. Finished, <laughs> finished. The, finish, the naughty corner. Anyway, I like that. In the naughty corner. That's I, right. I've got a few models um, in the naughty corner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we think, I think we've all got a few of them. Yeah, but. Anyway, so this porno, it's uh, it's five meters from wingtip to wingtip, uh, so oh, 198 inches old school. It's uh, 3.3 meters long, and the middle of the spindle will hit your fair square in the belt buckle. Gee. Um, when it was in my lounge room, 
my uh, my missus was having kittens <laughs> because you could uh, you could uh, have it sitting on its gear. I discovered the ottoman is exactly the right height when you're putting an engine in. Perfect. And uh, I could crawl under the aircraft to get from one side of the lounge room to the other. And uh, we call it an adult's lounge because you've got adult toys in there. Yep. And my toy happened to be the poor mate. <laughs> Taking pride of place. So I moved heaven and earth to get it done. Lots and lots of late nights because I only had a short time frame. We had the aero tow out at Warwickville. And uh, we certified it on the Friday night. And it, it, I, I put, my, put my flights in it, all the rest of it. Yep, signed off. I drove to Warwick Nabil, slept in the car that night so I couldn't find the motel. My mate's phone was flat. <laughs> it was his room. And, uh, yeah, I put on one flight with it that night, or that, that day, sorry. We did the group photo and stuff. I had a window blow out the side of it. The um, plastic was not terribly good. It was brittle. And uh, I had John Greenfield from the UK come over for that one, and, and John John played with the needles to try and get it really ripping on song. Anyway, after half a dozen flights of that, I had a, an engine flame out at Lilydale, and uh, I, I did a little bit of undercarriage damage to it. So I decided it needed more power. Hmm. And I told Bill about my plan, and Bill absolutely had kittens. Why? He said, it's never, ever had an engine put into the airframe that big before. The biggest it had ever had was a 3W275. I put in a 3W342. Excellent. It would just fit in the cow with five millimetres to spare either side of the cow. And the cow's not little. Yep, that's all you need, though. That'd be enough. So, yeah, so after I'd already painted all the aeroplane, I put all the graphics on it over the film. It was all painted. So I, I worked out how to paint over, over um, you know, iron on covering film. Um, I decided to take Bill's advice and strip it and re-engineer it. So over the next, oh, I don't know, however long it was, I'd repaired the damage to the undercarriage and boofed all that up. I put ply sides on it. I... Glass the entire fuselage with a heap of extra bracing inside it to give it some toughness because it was like a – I took the covering off. It was like Swiss cheese. There were holes everywhere to um, keep the weight down. Now, it flew originally at 36 kilos, and it was floating and flopping and didn't really do anything I wanted it to do properly. So um, the, the wing lighting needed to be a little bit higher, and I thought, oh, that's okay. You know, we'll, we'll come in, you know, 10 kilos heavier. It'll be great. So I put it all together, glassed it all, fabric covered it, re-engineered it. I changed just about everything about it. I didn't like how the horns were done, so I changed all those over um, at the time. Nobody could really tell me what it needed. Um, a, a good friend of mine, Larry Hultman in Texas, uh, he was flying one of Bill's 65% triplanes with a 342, big drag bucket, and I thought that'll be great. So I took 150cc control horns, I doubled them all up, I put ball links everywhere and heavy linkages and servos that'll break your fingers and all that kind of stuff. I split the plane in left half, right half, which is, you know, what I'd been, uh, it had been recommended to me in Europe as to what some of the guys were doing there. So a great idea. It's, it's proven itself. And uh, anyway, at Shepparton, uh, a bit over five years ago, we put the first flight on the Paul Neve. And everything went textbook. Uh, undercarriage 
um, the the shocks on. I was learning about tying undercarriage. You know, the uh, I tried doing the shocks with uh, with bungee rubbers because uh, at the time the stock model came with springs. That's what I should have mentioned. In that time, I'd met Dave Roberts, and Dave was a, a master um, sheet metal worker and fabricator. He's, he was brilliant. So the exhaust on the 342 comes out the top of the piston, right, right below the cowl on the top of it. So Dave hand fabricated using a 1600 psi gurney. He he um, hydroformed the header pipes, which he'd uh, he'd seam welded on the edge of them. He um, cut the seams out, hand beat them to make them round, and I've got custom header pipes that all fit underneath the cowl in the in the pulley, so nothing pokes out. So the carving's on the bottom per normal, but the exhaust comes out the top, wraps around the front of the engine that makes up the header pipe length for the massive canisters that sit in front of the undercarriage. Oh, really? And then Dave also went to the trouble of hand fabricating chrome the undercarriage for me and made the shocks for it, for the, the rams that go in the middle. And then, uh, then there's been a lot of trial and error of working out what the correct diameter of bungee cord is because I went from 36 kilo now I've got a 50 kilo heavyweight. Oh, gee. But it's so much nicer to fly. It does what you do when you tell it to do it. It's my all-time favourite pool knee. I've owned 13, 14 14s now <laughs> since I started modelling in all different sizes from the Hangar 9 little one to the 33%. I've owned two of them. Um Done stuff to them, and I thoroughly enjoyed them. They're just they're they're a great plane to fly, and they're great fun to throw around. And I, I get a real kick out of it. Pawnees for me, one of those models, a bit like a, a um, scale Cessnas, that they're, they're extremely realistic in the air. And it's yeah, and, I, I think that's a pretty fair thing. And it's an iconic shape as well, you know, with that sloping sort of fuselage kind of look. And when you when you see one coming in for a low pass, you, everyone's just then goes, "Yeah, that's just cool." Yeah, no, they're, they're, they're rock solid. And it's just, there's something that does it for me. You know, I love them. I reckon they're, you know, they've got their, they're kind of like a Wilga, but they're not as ugly. But then, then the ugliness of a Wilga is what makes them attractive. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree. The It's interesting, like, the, the plane weight changed dramatically. And you say, oh, look, absolutely. So, so, you know, often we're always taught, oh, light is always better. And I've heard from, some people in, in passing, you know, um, you know, plane manufacturers and stuff saying to me, oh, you know, we don't need to get any lighter with the plane. It'll just become a kite kind of thing. But you know, I do. It, yeah, absolutely. It, so did it lose that floatiness and become a bit more precise and direct? Well, it used to be that you'd take off in three feet and you, you'd touch down and you'd stop rolling in three feet. Mm. Um, it just it, – it didn't – it was like you're saying. It's almost like flying a hot air balloon. It just, it just, it doesn't do it. It just doesn't. Um, it doesn't perform the way a full size does. I mean, you've got to think about it. The Polonese designed to carry weight. They've got a massive wing area. They're designed to be filled with fertilizer or what have you, um, and carry huge amounts of load. So when they're light and floppy, uh, is when they're empty. Um, so yeah, that was the that was the starting point, and then there's been development over time. It's uh, trying to work out where the CUG is because what people may not understand is that when you're playing little, your CUG range is tiny. It might be 10 mil fore or aft on a you know on a 25 size model. When you get to a 46 percent, 
you're now talking 170 mil ECC or G range mm-hmm. from being nose heavy to being tail heavy and it's really light on the controls. It, it's it's a very big range. Um, you know, in the early days of learning to tow with it, it took me a while to work out what it was. Nobody could explain to me why it is that when you were towing, um, you'd have a couple of gliders on the back. Or we did a we did a twin tow, you know, with a couple of uh, third scale gliders at the Little Dale Air Show. Um, and you were having to push in a lot of down to try and hold the line, and we just I'd put it down to bring the weight. And as I went along with it, I started thinking a bit about it, and I realised that there's a bit more weight in the front. So I put a, um, a two and a half kilo lead diver's weight on top of the engine. Oh, that, yeah. that block is still there today. Oh really? And now it's on now it's on rails. So where we where I, I tried running Expo on the elevator to soften the elevator, all that's come out now. Now it's all linear. Yeah. It, it just it just doesn't need it. Um, and it tracks truer with that little bit of extra weight in the front, and that works for that particular aircraft. Mm. Um, then you get the next side of it is parasitic drag. So when you start playing at this size, you've got a huge amount of horsepower. There's, what, uh, 28, 30 horsepower in the front of it. You know, it's throwing a, a 40-inch propeller. Mm. But parasitic drag, when you double something inside, that goes up by a factor of, like, four. Um, and that's the same thing goes with, you know, with your, with your when you double the size, you quadruple the weight because vol- volumetrically it goes up in all dimensions. You know, and uh, and the stuff like that. So it's been a massive learning curve. I've gone through. It would have to be, I don't know, seven, eight propellers at five hundred dollars a pop to get the right one. Because when you play little, you're using less pitch. When you go bigger, you start using more pitch. And and until you've played with it, people don't always comprehend that because that then offsets your parasitic drag. So. You know, you'll have an airframe that'll do, for example, I had a, a 126 glider that I built many years ago. It was full composite out of my molds. It was an 18 month project start to finish. And I flew that for, I don't know, six years. And uh, in a vertical pin drop, it would do a maximum 100 kilometers an hour. And that came down to the porkiness of the fuselage, the thickness of the wings. It was a, you know, Epler 374 at 14% thick. Um, and that would limit the speed. The same thing happens with the Pawnee because they're a, you know, they're a porky sort of cross-section. It's a big thing. It's got a lot of drag. So that means that when you're towing with that aeroplane, because of – now, how does it work? When you put the nose up, it starts to slow down because of the weight factor. But I can fly that in a heavy breeze and it doesn't get affected. So there's a, there's a balancing act between the two. Um, and, you know, for me, the most memorable flight was – towing with a, a minimal power glider. Uh, sorry, tow plane, rather, with you know, my glider on the back. And it was a, a fifth-scale um, Carl Goldberg Cub, OS-70 Surpass in the front of it. I had a 3.6-metre, four-kilo-scale glider on the back at PN Darks. It took the entire length of the runway to take off, mm. and I had to push the glider to get it to start rolling because flat out, this thing just would not make it move. Yeah. And that was where... It, I realised that you've got to actually fly the glider on the back. You can't just be a passenger. Um, and, and I get in, you know, today's world, everyone's got high-powered tugs and all the rest of it, slippery things, and they're towing at 45 degrees, and, and that's that's great for those that want to do that. But for me, the Pawnee was built around my ASW-22. 
So my present to myself when I started at Boeing six months in was to buy a glider. And I bought this big thing out of the UK, which had had a couple of flights on it, a little bit sketchy in a couple of areas. I knew it was going to need work, but I went down the path of it. Twelve years on, still not finished. <laughs> but I've got a little stuff in between. Yeah. And I'm getting pretty close. And, you know, my ultimate goal is to tow that 22 with the Thornic. So five years of development of propellers. I think I started off with a 38 by 14, which was the recommended on the, the engine engine box. I went to up and down the engine scale based on people's recommendations. So I went from, you know, I think I went up to a, a, a 41 by 10. And it just, it was horrible. And then I kept changing around and chopping and trying different stuff. And I finished up settling on a 37 and a half by 16. Is it a three blade or a two blader? No, two blade. Two blade. Um, that, that's been really nice. And uh, yeah, I like it. So I think that'll give me the, the speed that I want for towing something a little bit quicker. It's never going to be a 45 degree climb angle. That, that just goes out the window. But that's not what scale flying is about for me. For me, it's about making something look right. Um, you know, 12 years ago, my big slicer that I flew for six years, um, I asked a bit much of the receiver on it, part of that learning curve, you know, when Spectrum first came out. Not the receiver's fault. That was that was the monkey on the sticks, mine. And I buried this thing behind the trees at Gerildery. And it's the only crash scene I'm aware of that's ever had an ambulance turn up in the middle of it. So my scale really must have been fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> that's a classic. The um, It was interesting when you're talking about uh, uh, tugging planes up. I know that there are people that are using their aerobatic models to, to take planes up and they get planes sort of pretty quickly up into the air. But Absolutely. I'm a bit like yeah. you, though, that I – if I'm going to have a scale glider, I don't want it to be tugged up by a Pawnee or a Cub or something like that. I don't want to have it tugged up by an aerobatic, an extra that's going to, you know, do some 3D on the way up. It just doesn't, you've got to have the right tug. I went, and I went, I had a ride in a full-size glider, a Benella, and there was a Pawnee and, I'm, you know, tugging up and I was like, that is cool. Like that's the proper gliding experience when you've got like a Pawnee pulling you up. Yeah, look for sure. You know, I've um, I remember um, going up up to Manila over a weekend with um, a gentleman by the name of Ross Dutton. He um, he was he was very generous. I was building a, a quarter scale Kestrel at the time, uh, one of Ralph Leamont's models. Yeah, and he invited me up to have a look at and take a heap of photos of his um, Kestrel. And in the process of it, I I got to flying in. Um, in the IS-28s up there and a, um, and a Janus. And I flew every IS-28 they had up there. <laughs> and it's always stuck with me. And years later, I saw a, uh, a video on it was Jack Thompson's Australia. And they had, um, well, I think it was, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, Ingo Renner was on it. And they had IS-28s doing low-level aerobatics. And I've never, ever forgotten that. And it's something I've always wanted to um, emulate. So uh, a few years ago, I, I started making making plans for um, with some help for some people um, to do a, a large IS twenty eight. I've never seen one model before. So uh, somewhere down the track, that'll be popping up um, next to the twenty two, 
and uh, it'll be it'll be getting towed by a poor leaf. You have a big list of models to build, haven't you? Oh, I've got a great big swimming pool list of aeroplanes to build and finish. Absolutely. Um, I think I, I did a check the other day, and I actually kind of scared myself. I'm doing a bit of a spring clean at the moment, but I've got uh, I think I've got in the background about twelve projects, and it's, it gets a bit scary, and it's um. Gets a bit overwhelming sometimes. But, and they're they're all know. big, aren't they? Mostly, yeah. Yeah, know, mostly. Um, you have to have a big house. <laughs> put, put all the... oh, yeah, well, I've got a big shed and a big trailer, and they live in my trailer, and I think my models in my trailer have done more kilometres than they've actually flown. Yeah, I'm the same. I call my, my trailer my storage shed. It happens yeah. to follow me around. You know, you, you, go to the cl- you go to the flying club and you take the 30cc out and 200, 100ccs that come with me, you know. For the ride, yeah. Know. But oh well, that's part of the part of what we have to do to, to have these models is you know have to come that's with us. Thing, you know, it's, it's it's part of the infrastructure. I mean, my trailer when I um when I had it built was only going to be five meters long, and it's it's kind of finished up a little bit bigger than that because they had the extra panel in hand. And oh, would you like it to be bigger? Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, it was built to fit the twenty-two in the side of it. Hmm. Uh, the twenty-two to give you an idea, it's um it's four point three meters long. It's thirteen point three meters in span, or forty three feet. <laughs> and the wings on a flex, and uh, six feet, and the fuselage is still sitting on the ground. That's just crazy. Um, that is that's, massive. That's, that's holding it up as high as you can hold it by the wingtips, and they just flex. And what What do you think the weight's going to be of that model when it's finished? Well, I've got a pretty good idea. Now, it, it flew originally at thirty six kilos, which I've always said was too light for it. Uh, I've got a, a guy I chat with on um, on Facebook, Peter Arnold. He's just finished building a Ash 25. Now, that's the two-seat version of the ASW 22, same wing. He built the 12-point – sorry, his model is the 12.6 metres, I think it is. So he's pretty close to me, and he's flying that at 50 kilos. Yeah. And it flies really well. How will the Pawnee so, go tugging something that heavy up? It, it won't be an issue. I've always, I've always had the theory: if you can make it roll, you can tow it. It's just a question of how much fuel you've got in the tanks to how high you're going to get it. Yeah. Because it's going to be a long tow. Uh, in my case, I've got forty minutes of fuel on board. Oh, okay. That'd be <laughs> all right then. It's, but what about getting it off the ground? Like, you know, do you think that getting it just into the air will be a challenge? I don't think that's going to be too much of an issue, to be honest. Um, you know, the with the long, the long skinny wings of the twenty-two, there's um I've actually made I've made new outboard panels for it, which uh I worked out from trial and error with the originals. They they were a bias spar, which meant that under negative load they'd sag like a you know, sag like a banana. Uh, and the tips would be really close to the ground. With the new panels on it, um, I've gained an extra I don't know, eight inches of clearance under the chips. So I've now got about 12 inches under either side, which is plenty. Maybe even a little bit more than that. Um, the instant the glider starts rolling, you, you're flying the wing, and the tips start start coming up. Um, I'm expecting regular flight to have somewhere between two and three foot of flex either side um, for general flight. And so that side of it's not going to be too much of an issue. I know that's, you know, in the past, there have been a few people who made comment about, oh, you know, you'd be lucky if you get the chips off the ground. Okay. Um, as for tumming wise, 
I'm kind of estimating it's going to be like that flight that I did with the uh, with the Carl Goldberg Cub. If it flew at PM Darks, it would take all the runway. And you're probably going to clear by about a metre on the end of the fence, maybe two. And you're going to spend the next 10 minutes climbing to altitude. And it's going to be the most enjoyable flight that you've ever had because you had to work for it. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be fun. You know, it's, um, look, I, I love that stuff. You know, I think I find... I think I find a bigger buzz these days out of doing the toe and the landing than I do out of the out of the flight in the middle. Do you know I've always had this idea of how cool it would be to to be the tug tug pilot. I reckon that like I've always had this romantic view of it. Like, wouldn't that be cool to have your tug plane there and get a plane, get a glider up in the air and bring it back down as soon as you can and say, okay, who's next? Let's go. Let's keep it. Let's keep it rolling, kind of thing. I think. Look. It's it's a funny thing, you know. It's a, it's a funny experience. It's um it's it's a mixture of blood, sweat, and tears. It really is because if you don't get it right, nobody wants to fly with you. And in the end, you you get to the point where you go, well, "Why do I do it? I do it because I'm meant to be having fun." So I go, you know, you you, you find your you find your space. It's hard work. At the end, like I did, a, we did a, an arrow tow out at Grampians a few years ago, and uh, I was the only tug that was left, and I towed all day. You know, you, you uh, we started towing at nine o'clock in the morning. I think it was one or two stops for full size, and I got to have lunch at you know half past two, three o'clock in the afternoon. It, it's hard work, it really is. And the hats off to the guys that tow because they, the guys put in an awesome, awesome effort. It's uh, it's their R and D. It's their blood, sweat, and tears, and and development that uh, uh, gets all your gliders up in the air. Yeah, you know, I've had, um, I've really had a mixed a mix a mixed bag of the whole lot. You know, um, I think flying the the hanging iron pawnee that I, I set up as a Britling pawnee when I stripped it and rebuilt it, um, that one's been a truckload of fun. That was a lot of fun to fly. I had the 120 cc in the front of it, and uh, I did a lot of, I did some, you know, did some paying for a season with Barms with that, and I loved it. It was great fun, you know. But uh, at the end of the day, then you have the maintenance at the end of the day, you know, like with the pool knee, every with the big one. Before I take it out for an event, I spend a week going over it. Yeah, and what are some of the? What actually? I, I saw some of your Facebook posts around that, and I was I was reading them intently. Uh, explain to everybody what that maintenance regime looks like with the pool knee, and some just some of the key things that. You yeah, okay. look at so all right. So with the well, let's start at the beginning. You have a new airframe, you've you've gone through the rigors, you think it's right, you've you've flown it the first couple of times. Um you know, then you have little things pop up. For example, I was flying it out at um Gerildery oh, five five years ago, and I've flown with it, I've tied with it, done everything else with it, and I Coming to land, and I asked the motors, the motors stop. Oh, that's a good one. I couldn't get the motor to start again. You get the odd pop and the odd fart and all the rest of it, and you go, okay, this is um, something's not right. Let's just let's just pack it up and we'll take it home. So I took it home. I popped the access cover, you know, pulled the cows off it, um, put it up on the blocks, which for me is a set of A-boards that sit at about waist height. So you got to lift 25 kilos of fuselage up onto these pair of A-frames. And you do it by, you know, one one end at a time and slide that slide the rails in, and then I'm taking off the access hatch underneath the uh, underneath the canisters. I've found that the 
the lock screw on the on the, the servo would let go. Yeah. So the actual servos had, had come undone and the servo arm had popped off. Yeah. All right, so note to self, next time use thread lock. So I put thread lock in there. Um, not something I've encountered before. You, um, when you do your, well, for me, it's it's going through linkages, watching stuff, seeing how things move, um, working out, okay, well, I didn't like how that was held down. I'm going to change that a little bit to get it to the next level. So it might be, um, I don't know, when you say change it, okay, um, you may not feel you've got enough cable ties having things clipped in. So you add a couple extra to it, or you find, uh, for example, through the life of mine, it's had ongoing maintenance. You know, I found that the um, the original setup on the wing struts were flying out at Cootamundra, and I, I I came in on it, and I'd landed, taxied back in, and I see that the strut's wobbling. So you go and have a closer look, and, you, oh, and I found that the, uh, the end of the bolt that was coming out of the end of the wing strut, where it had been pinned by the factory, had sheared straight through the pin. So it's okay. That's all right. So when you get home, it goes on the whiteboard and everything you have to change goes on the whiteboard. And if it's if it's a major structural article, then it goes through recertification. Um, and that's a simple thing is you chat to your inspector, you come up with a plan. Uh, so in my case, I, I upgraded all the bolts. I took the... I took the cross pins off that finished right at the end of the strut where it's at, at its most amount of load. I moved the cross pin to the very end of the bolt where it's got a good, uh, a good, you know, 75 mil into the strut, uh, a purchase area. I bonded it with laminating epoxy and milled fibers, my favorite mix. It's now it's, now it's a structural medium where previously it was only stuck into the end of it in between a couple, couple of blocks of timber. Uh, and there was no glue in there. So it was something that I discovered about it. Uh, and then as I've gone, okay, well, that one's failed. Maybe it's a one-off, maybe it's not. You know what? I'll replace all of them. So now I've got you know, stainless steel bolts in the end of the end of the, the rod ends, and I know they're not going to fail. So five years on, that repair has been absolutely sound. I've had no issues with it. Uh, it might be... Tail wheel loose spring, not overly happily with the springs on it, so I'll go and tension them up a bit more, or I'll, or I'll upgrade the spring. Um, you know, my, my tail wheel assembly, uh, I made all the patterns for the tail wheel yoke for the um, uh, for the fork on the end of it, and then I used um, 14, two mil by fourteen mil flat steel stain, uh, spring steel blades out from Groutner, which they use as glider wing joiners. Uh, my leaf springs on the tail wheel. Okay. <laughs> You know, it's stuff like that. Um, you're looking for things. You're looking for, uh, like, for example, before I do a flight every single time, with the engine running, I'll physically manipulate the flight control and see if something is loose. Has a bolt fallen out? Has a uh, has a horn come loose? Uh, has the servo done something silly and it's not holding centre as, as part of your standard pre-flight? Not only is it, it's not about, wiggle wiggle on the sticks it's about i've got right aileron i've got right rudder i've got up elevator i've got down elevator and they're all sequences that you run through you know i'm gonna i'm gonna push on the struts and make sure that they're right because while the pawnee flies without struts 
i.e. the one that broke, what they're there to do is to give the wing torsional stiffness. The wing spars and the joiner are doing all the work of the flight loads, but the struts are keeping them stiff. Mm. You know, stuff like that. Um, and you kind of work your way through it. You know, I've got, um, yeah, you, you look at you look at stuff and you look at things that come loose, especially when you're playing with big twins. You know, the uh, the three forty twos a thumper. It's uh, it's it's like riding a single a single cylinder motorcycle with five hundred seat. Well, we we just had a call drop out, but we've got got Ross back on the line. Ross, you're talking about um, maintenance on the on the plane. Uh, yeah. Motor wise, it's a pretty rare motor, and 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 has got a lot of grunt. How much work and maintenance work are you doing on the motor, even prop bolts, things like that? Look, the motor itself has been pretty good. Um, you know, it's uh, it's it's been a learning curve along the way. You know, at one point I I had an engine doing something a little bit strange. Uh, a friend of mine talked me through the process of pulling down the um, the carby on it, and sure enough, found a bit of found a bit of rubbish that got into it. Um, I don't know, picked up grass seed or something like that, and. Uh, it's it's back together. Um, in terms of in terms of things failing on the motor, the motor itself is really good. The mounting bushes for them, they're a soft mounted motor, and I keep an eye on what the bushes are doing. So I've done through two sets of engine bushes in five years where the bushes have split through. The um, the airframe structure has been really good. Um, what I put in there probably overkill, but it's survived um, a lot of a lot of flying. I've, I've cracked up well and truly over 100 hours of flight time now. Um, and when you then think about that, my average flight is oh, 25 to 35 minutes when I'm having fun, and it's reverse stall turns every either end of the strip and big long slow rolls over the middle. And it does some beautiful. It, it takes five, takes five seconds to roll from one side to the other. <laughs> does it? How how um how much fuel does it carry? Uh, I've got um three point eight liters of fuel, and it's a cool power blue ball. Is my fuel oh, tank? Oh really? Yeah. So a full flight, like what what if you had to max it out? What do you think you could get out of a flight from the time perspective? I get um I think I've got it to about fifty minutes, and I've landed with a dribble in the bottom. Fifty minutes. Oh yeah. And that's and that's that's on the throttle, off the throttle, and it's just playing stall turns at either end of the strip. It's been a huge amount of. Where fun. did you do that? <laughs> like, Kudamundra. Okay. No, like, there are a great bunch of guys up there, and it's a nice big field. It's a state field in New South Wales, um, and I, I, I love knocking around with all you know people of all walks of life, um, and they're, they're just they're just great guys. You know, there's um, nothing's ever too much for them. Yeah, the boys come down from Canberra, other boys come down from Sydney, and everybody catches up in the middle, which is Cooter. Well, that's true. It's a good location. But, but... You know, it is. You know, I love the fact that you can go up on the second floor balcony up there and look out over the field. Um, there's cracking thermals go through there, and it's a massive strip. And and more than anything else, they're great people. I've been. I've driven past it accidentally. I was on my way to Bathurst, and uh, and I drove past. I drove. I saw a sign. With a model plane, you know, the, the the classic model plane sign on the front gate. I went, "What's that? Oh, that my Cuda." Yeah, Cuda's great. Cuda absolutely works. If I wasn't in a rush to get to the Bathurst, I would have. 
would have stopped in, but uh, there's no no action happening. I don't think the weather was very good that day. Everyone was driving past, but uh, but yeah, they have a lot of lot of events there. Um, you know, a lot of iMac events and things like that. Where, where speaking of places to fly, where is your main go-to place to fly now, especially with the big well, Pawnee? At the moment, um, not always with the Pawnee, but um, I love flying down at Bawbaw. Oh, They're, the, um, the new the Braggs Club. Is that the one that's right on the lake? Yeah, yeah, we're um, we're right on the edge of it. Um, I've in the last few years, I've I'm absolutely having a ball flying seaplanes. Um, big thanks to to Tim Nolan for his influence on that one. It's his fault. Yeah, um, Tim. Oh, look, Tim's great. He's he's really good value, and I, I like Tim. He's uh, he's very very generous with his knowledge, and he's he's taught me a hell of a lot uh, about vacuum bagging and all that kind of stuff. Um, his fly baby, his new his new big model, the fly baby, is beautiful. It's lovely, isn't it? It's a yeah, thing. The color scheme is just perfect. It just it looks good in the air. And that's another that's another big model. It was, that was it suits the period. Year. It really does. It's 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 very very nicely executed. Yeah. So you know, Tim, with his generosity, he made the trip down from Sydney to, to teach me how to vacuum bag, and uh, I did my first vacuum bag Catalina with Tim, and uh, you know that in itself has been a has been a long adventure of. Uh, I remember seeing the seeing the original cat hanging up at Laverton Air Force Base, yeah. and uh, always wanting to build one. And it was it was a big model. Like back in the day, it was four meters. And um, yeah, I uh, was doing a composite course through um, through work when I was working for Boeing. And uh, in the process of it, I'd, I'd tracked down the guys that had the molds, got the molds, got the molds back over, and borrowed them, and then. You know, Tim got back involved because Tim made the moles 30 years ago with uh, with Russell Keep. And, um, you know, through Steve, I'd, I'd, we'd, we'd found the stuff and got everything happening. And I've been playing Catalinas for the last, I don't know, three years now. Have you have you got fly, some that fly, are flyable or not? Uh, I'm getting close. I'm, I'm building my own personal one, but I've also made kits for people as well. Okay. Um, other people have got, oh, I want one of those. That looks really cool. Hmm. So um, we've now got um, we've now got seven seven Catalinas all being built um, in all different states of the uh, of the country, and uh, that's been that's been a bit of an adventure. And uh, yeah, looking forward to seeing where that one goes. And it's interesting to see how the weights have come down. So I, I made my first hand lay Catalina as a you know. Um, Simple, you know, uh, hand laid fiberglass. I'm not too worried about how much it's going to weigh because I just need getting a feel for what the tool does. Um, you know, we'd uh, uh, with Tim's advice, I'd broken the broken the molds back in because they haven't been used for 30 years, and uh, waxed it all up and painted all the molds and laid the part up inside it, and it came in at um, four kilo, which is a little on the portly side. And then Tim came down and we laid one up together, and that one was 3.2 kilos under vacuum with um, cork as the core material. And then Tim went and laid his own one up that came in at three kilo. We thought that that's looking pretty good. The moles came back down to me from Sydney, and I laid my cat up. Well, that one was two point seven kilo. How did you get that? Where did you save the weight? Well, some of it's in the process. Some of it's in where you put stuff and what you put in the hole. I'll just add a little bit here. No, you don't. Hmm. It's um everything has a has a purpose. As one person said to me, there are no free rides in this game. Everything has to count. 
And it, it's if it if it doesn't have to be there, then it's dead weight. So in the last couple of cats I've made, now they're at 2.5 kilo. I mean, the thing I love about glass and cork, and I've got a, a big a big shout out, thank you to um, to Trent Smith for putting me on the cork mm-hmm. in the first place and teaching me stuff, and to Richard and Patsy at the um, uh, the, the, the rappers. Yeah. They are the absolute guns of glass and cork, and um, they've taught me a hell of a lot. So that's that's been fantastic. Explain what this glass and cork is. Is, it, is it, you putting glass down, then cork, then another layer of glass, or how does it work? Yeah, it is quite literally. Um, so a, a company called Lavender Composites up in Queensland. Shout out to the boys up there. Um, they have one millimeter core cork. Oh, really? And yeah, and then in in playing with the stuff of for me, I found that three ounce glass or one hundred three GSM laid into the mold first after you painted it. Then you put in a layer of cork, you wet it all out, put in a layer of glass, and then you put the whole thing under vacuum and you suck the absolute bejesus out of it. Mm. And what you get is a very, very rigid and reasonably light structure. It's, it's, I'm not going to say it's as light as, as say, Roa cell or Divin cell, but unlike those, if you run, a, if you run a, a fingernail down the side of it in either of the other two materials, you'll leave a big groove in cork. Nothing at all. Okay. So amazing stuff. So I've been playing with that. I've, you know, I've been uh, uh, accumulating and collecting molds um, for the last few years, and and getting a kick out of making a part out of each one of them. And you know, in, in some cases, I've, I've done I've done a part out of the mold, done my way in exchange for a set of molds. You know, when people get a bit tired of their molds or they don't want to play with them or um, what, what have you. And the weights have been coming down. Is it true? A little birdie told me that you may have a super chipmunk mold. Um, not yet. But I do have the canopy plug. Or do you? So you've got part of a super um, chipmunk. Well, I got part of one. Yes, I, I do know where the molds are. Um, there's a few of us keeping tabs on where things are just to keep them around. Um, you know, one of the with the I'm laying I'm actually finishing off laying up the last Catalina at the moment, which is number seven. Uh, I've got to, I've still got to go and join that, and then it'll be uh, delivered over the weekend to uh, to Albury, provided I can get through the floodwaters. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, after that, oh, we're doing wind gills. So 30 years ago, a gentleman made a very very nice wind gill, and I've tracked him down and, and chased him and chased him and chased him and he's finally given up and let me let me borrow the moulds in exchange for a part and um, I'll be doing a batch of wind gills. Um, what else have we done? Um, uh, I did a, a vacuum bagging a little oh, 18 months ago in between COVID for um, uh, Hayden Hampson's, I borrowed his moulds for um, the P40. They were the last set of moulds he made before he passed, and they're, they're beautiful, beautiful moulds. And, you know, the parts out of those, they were coming in at 1.4 kilo for a, uh, a fifth-scale P40 fuselage, and they're solid. Like, without any formers in them, you can't squeeze them. You know, so they're, they're light and they're rigid. They give a nice surface finish, certainly as good as the mould, and uh, it gives you a good starting point. So it's keeping this stuff around, keeping it alive. This bagging um, technique—you must have a pretty big setup. Well, I borrowed a pump from a mate of mine years ago, and I've still got it. (laughs) 
And uh, so that's for, for that one. It's a, a, a medical grade vacuum pump. I couldn't give you figures on what it, what it pumps out, but um, it's then uh, I, I usually set up on a set of um, on a set of panel stands. You know, you need enough space so you can walk around your mould. Um, and other than that, it's not much. You know, I bought a roll, I don't know, 25 years ago, I bought a roll of uh, 1,200 wide, 200 micron plastic bag. And uh, I, I made my own bag locks, which are, you know, U-shaped aluminium channel with a piece of petrol fuel line down the middle of it. That's my bag lock. You know, so you fold the bag in it, you fold it back over it, and you lock it down with the, the petrol fuel one. So now you've got a now you've got a bag that's sealed on either end. Um, where the valve goes through, you can buy those from um, Weinbach Composites in Torquay. Um, great bunch of guys down there. They've got all the gear for, for vacuum bagging to get you started. Um, you know, you put your duct tape over the hole that you punch in it for um, for the, the valve to go through. And uh, you turn the pump on, and you start, you know, you start pushing into all the corners and stuff. And all of a sudden, you'll see it, you'll see it really take hold, and the bag will suck right down, drum tight. And then with your with your peel ply and your your breather cloth that's already in there that you've already laid laid in and cut, um, over time you'll start seeing resin coming through. And that's how you know that you get in the excess out because it's atmospheric pressure is squeezing on the on the part, so you're not actually sucking air out you're removing the atmosphere within the bag and then the external atmosphere is, pr- is actually pushing against it. So uh, effectively, you know, same effect you get when you have a, a wet sponge. You know, you squeeze the sponge, all the water comes out or what have you. And it's doing the same thing. Um, so consolidation of your laminate is where your strength is coming from and in what the laminate or what the core material actually is. You know, but it's it's limitless as to what you can do with it. It really comes down to um, a little bit of a serious imagination as to how you can get into it. And like, you know, I just use an envelope bag. For me, it's easy. It's simple. And you can even you can even vacuum bag a, a cylinder, for example. If you've done a repair on a tube, you can run the bag down the inside of the uh, of the tube, and then fold the bag back over the outside, seal the end of it off, and put the put the pump into it. Now, when you turn the vacuum on, it sucks on the inside of the part and the outside. And atmosphere does its job and, and squeezes the life out of it um, until you have a consolidated laminate. Did, have you ever watched uh, the Mike, Mike Patey videos on YouTube? I haven't, no. Oh, no. You've, seriously, I thought you would have. Mike Patey's a, a, a basically a guy in the US... Uh, he he built the Draco um, uh, model that E-Flight uh, sort of modeled their foamy off. But oh, it's, it's I have seen bits of it, yes. Yes, because he does a lot of molding with composites because, you know, he built this new carbon and he's, it's all composite. And and I'd love, I loved watching him work and he's got a great setup. Like he's he's got a bit of, bit of money behind him. He's been successful in business so he can afford to do it. But he's using carbon fibre and stuff and, and he just makes his own stuff, and it's almost like, as you were talking, it's like um, analog three D printing in a kind of way with some of the composite work, you know. And um, I really like that idea. Like, like, does it is it really satisfying once you've pulled the bag off, and you you pull away, you know, the the pill ply or whatever, and and you've got the end product, and you look at it, are you really satisfied? And you know, think, wow, that's pretty cool. 
Well, I know with the first three cats it was. Now it's like, no, it's just another cat. Yeah. <laughs> but no, look, I, and and I think that's the it's a bit of the um the new toy syndrome, you know. New toy is always good fun. So when you make the first couple of parts out of a mold and you start getting it right and then you start getting consistency, well, when you get consistency, it kind of gets a bit boring because you've done it before. Um, you know, I'll, like it's like with the cats, I've worked out that two point five kilos. I don't think it's going to get any lighter than that. And if it does, what did I forget to put in there? Yeah, yeah, it's, that's pretty light. Really, yeah, I'm, when you think I'm about starting it. to have consistency now that I'm I'm getting that continuously. Um, you know, varying factors, your ambient temperature. The colder it is, the harder it is to work composite. But when it gets too hot, eh, then things start going off too quick. So you've got to have that happy medium. You know, um, anywhere from um, well, I don't know, uh, what, 22 to, to 28 degrees is your optimum range. Um, and then learning other stuff. You know, when I was when I was working at Boeing, I was doing um, doing composite repairs on um, carbon fibre skins for Dreamliner. You know, you'd have a, somebody drill a hole in the wrong spot or, or, you know, somebody's hit it with something or they dropped it. Uh, any of these sort of things happen. You then follow their, their repair process. Um, and, uh, you know, like blending out a repair um, where you're going through all the different layers and laminates, you've got to get it all back to um, uh, back to ground zero to where it needs to be. And that, that was that was a really good learning curve for me. It's, you know, it got my spark, my interest up in composite um, to a large extent. And just seeing how strong the stuff actually is and what you can do with it. But What about wings? What are you, are you doing foam cores or, or what? Look, I've I, I played around with a couple of things. Um, in the in the Mustang, I've I've been dribbling along with for the last um, I don't know a few months since I since I you know bought it back originally for the for the guy I sold it to. Um, that had full composite wings in it, and that was all glass and cork, right? Part of the learning curve. My own preference uh, is foam core, and uh, for example, I made a set of wings for. Um, uh, my my grob uh, 109 minor glider. That was two mil balsa skins, white foam cores. Um, developed my method of making a, a, a spar in it, which is uh, good old fashioned Bunnings light ply with glass on both sides of it. And uh, you then tie your joiner in the middle of it uh, and then running carbon tape for your spar caps. And uh, I ran the numbers past a friend of mine who um, confirmed that, yep, you've got the right cross sectional area of carbon on the spar. Um, the outside of the wing was glassed and uh, the proof of the pudding is being able to pick it up by the wingtips at 4.3 metres and 9 kilo model. And all you see is flex. So it tells me that that bit was right. Um, I've looped it and rolled it and done all sorts of horrible things with it and it's and that combined with the glass fuselage and glass and cork has shown me that uh, just how, how strong the composite structure actually is. And that you know what I what I put together in in you know in what I thought was going to be right, it actually was, um, you know. And then for other things, you know, I've got a, a flying wing there. I I made the wing calls for a couple of years ago. I've got a one of my one of my uh, one of my bookshelf projects I need to finish. Um, at the SB thirteen, um, you know, I, I worked on that for quite a lot of years and had the patent sitting around for quite a lot of years and finally got around to getting moulds made for it and all that kind of stuff and laying up parts. And um, then I had a, 
uh, a good friend of mine go and do all the all the torsional load calculations on it. It was five meters span and ten degrees sweep back on the wing, and you know very skinny at the tips. And uh, I went down the process in that one of having blue foam cores cut, uh, laying up fiberglass skins on polished laminex benchtop, which gives a nice smooth flat finish. I'd already painted uh, pre-painted the skin so that you don't get um, you don't get uh, a um, print through with the fiberglass cloth. Um, so the, the paint gives you a nice finish on the outside. And then uh, to the back of that, I'll then laid in uh, two layers of um, six-ounce carbon twill, two over two under at 45 degrees. Um, oh, we also, I think we did a, I think I did a third layer over the, the rude area where it's got the most amount of torsional twist. And that, that followed with his calculations. Um, my uh, my shear web set up the glass and glass and ply both sides, and then um, the interesting part about that one was that I had to actually lay the core inside the skin because the skin is now heavy with glass and carbon that you can't turn it over. So put everything inside the jacket and basically offer it up backwards, tape it all together, turn it over, put it inside the vacuum bag, weight everything down, seal the bag up, and turn the vacuum on. And what I finished up with was um, uh, a wing that is torsionally stiff. It's got all living hinges inside the skins, which are um, peel ply. <coughs> I mean, all the faces are put in from the bottom skin, so you you, you skin the, the top side first. And uh, what you finish up with is is a five meter model that, um, at the moment, is a five is five kilos per wing panel, which you, people might go that's heavy, but the fuselage is only a meter long. And there's there's virtually nothing in the fuselage, so I'm finishing up with a a scale model that's five meters. It's weighing at the moment ten kilos plus a little bit. It'll finish up around the somewhere between ten and ten and thirteen kilos finished. That's not a bad weight for a five meter model, but it's one that there's there's a lot of unknowns about it as far as um, the blend of section that I've used. It's a reflex section. Um, designed for swept back flying wings. Um, how fast can I fly before the wings start to flutter? That's the bit we don't know. But with the torsional load calcs being done, I think we sh- I think we should be pretty safe. Um, but I'll move to the next step when I get to it. Um, yeah, just stuff like that. You know, it's um, it, this is all part of the design and development and, and engineering processes. You know, learning how to learning how to tie off bungee rubbers. You know. Um, I had a friend of mine come over and say to me, no, no, don't use crimps. He goes, use bricky flying. You know, so you stretch the bungees out to maximum tension, you put a hangman's noose on the end of it, you bind it back along the hangman's noose, and then you run the end of the tail of the noose through the eye of the of the, of the loop and you pull it tight. Now, those that took two years before I worked out how to do that bit or be, be shown how to do it, that's now run for three years, and it's, it's never ever failed. So this is this is part of your design and development and learning learnings along the way. Do you think we'll ever see a day when we see carbon fiber models, or is it going to be cost prohibitive? No, carbon models are out today. Well, well, no, I, yes, I, I'm, we've seen gliders and things like that that are that are, yeah. that are full carbon, but we don't see it really in scale modeling. Oh, look. I think it depends upon what it is you're doing and, and what the application is. You know, carbon carbon is a great medium if it's used correctly. Uh, for example, 
Carbon's great under tension, but lousy under compression. Under compression, the stuff explodes. And this is why you do it in sandwich laminate. Um, you know, uh, carbon's great for if you if you use the correct bias, then, right, i.e., so instead of having, say, uh, if you treat it as being a, a horizontal line, which is zero, zero, you then have um, zero, 90. So you turn the you turn the you turn the actual glass strands at ninety degrees. Think of think of wood grain in, in timber. You know, um, carbon's no different. And the kind of weave you use, whether it be a a twill, a plain weave, a basket weave, a um, oh, there's all sorts of different kinds out there, or a satin weave. Um, so it comes down to, I mean, cost cost itself, it's not too bad on price, but when you start doing really big stuff, then it becomes a bit more expensive. Obviously, and and what have you. So, look, I, I think it depends on the aircraft. You know, if it's a if it's a thing that's going to go a million miles an hour, carbon fiber makes a lot of sense. Uh, if you use it the correct avenue, yeah. you know, um, I, I know in the Catalinas, you know, I, I I put a I put a pair a pair of um, hoops of seventy five mil wide carbon six k right, so six thousand strands per something um and that's a that that reduces the stress rise that you would see in the outside of the fuselage from where the former goes in it dissipates the load and the fillet that goes on the side of the former does a perfect job of dissipating load and creating you know, giving it a, a much bigger footprint so it actually thins out as it as it as it gets to the end of its um end of its fillet um and then from, from in my case the carbon then takes over from that and puts it over a 75 mil area, which then dissipates it into the cork, and then the glass on the outside has no idea it's even there. You know, it's just stuff like that. You know, you think about what you're doing and where you're putting it. Um, you know, with the Catalinas, I'm aiming for 16 to 18 kilos ready to go with the retracts in them. Um, at the moment, I'm looking like I'm, I'm going to hit target. It's going to be close to the 18 kilo mark. But, uh, you know, I'm running at, what, 6.2 kilos for the fuselage with retracts. My wings are going to be somewhere around the 5 to 6 kilo mark. So, you know, you're now up around um, between 11 and 12 and a half kilo. There's going to be, well, each of my horizontal stabs with servos in them and linkages, uh, you're looking at about half a kilo each. You go, half a kilo, that's a lot. They're pretty, they're, they're, they're pretty big. They're chunky. <laughs> Uh, and then to compensate that, well, it's about a two and a half to one ratio of tail to nose moment. So there's, um, you know, you're adding two and a half times the amount of lead in the front of it to compensate for the tail. Mm. And uh, your numbers are starting to look kind of respectable. Um, so it's working out. And it's not about the final weight. It's about the wing loading. That's the only bit that, that actually matters. Um, and when you start talking big to work out that loading, um, Phil Clark put me onto a formula years ago for um, – volumetric loading. Uh, I can't remember the top end what the actual figure was, but all this stuff is out there. You know, there are, there are calculators out there for, uh, for example, for um, working torsional load, working out your wing spars, working out your servo torque requirement, um, working out the amount of power you actually need to fly an aircraft. You know, a lot of things we fly today are so overpowered it's not fun. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, like, like, like you know, I, I had a friend of mine hand me a 60 size trainer with a 45 in the front of it. And I, he converted it to tail wheel, 
it took the entire length of the strip at Lilydale to take off. And I've got to tell you, it was the most enjoyable flying. Yes. Because you had to work for it. I, uh, I, I always say that one of the greatest sights that I've seen in a flying field was, was at a club down at the Ballerine Peninsula that I'm a member of, and there was a guy with a diesel model there. And oh, yeah. the aim, and it was extremely underpowered. A small little plane, but it was extremely underpowered. And I'd never seen a diesel plane before. And I've got video of it, actually. And this guy was trying to get it off the ground. And he was running along the runway. It was running along the runway. Ran out of runway. Mm. They go and get the model. The engine was still running. Bring it back. Go back a bit further, the guy says. He goes back a bit further. And he missed, <laughs> still couldn't get into the air. And then third time lucky, I think it was, that he managed to just get it up into the air. And and had the throttle pinned all the time. We were sitting there hooting and hollering because this was like, this is unreal. This thing was just putt-putting along. But the fact that it got in the air was just, it was more enjoyable than seeing like, you know, I can grab one of my 100cc aerobatic planes be in the air in about five metres. Like, yeah, it's, yeah. it's uh, yeah. pretty uneventful. But um, it's che- I always say some of these aerobatic models are cheating. But um, yeah, I, they're a bit of fun when you go when you got to work for it, I reckon. And then even when you've got to fly it, you've got to manage the throttle and stuff like that. And, um, and that, that's enjoyable as well. Oh, that's, it's the challenge, I think, that we enjoy. I, I think I think it is. I really do. You know, it's um, I remember flying for a lot of years there. I've got a, a Japanese vintage primary that uh, I bought at auction when I was a young bloke. I think I paid, I don't know, $50 or something for it. Frank Smith built it back in 1980. And it was a challenge to fly it. Like back in the day, we were, we were bungee launching it, and uh, it was horrid. It was absolutely horrible to win to, to bungee launch or, or witch launch for that matter. And then working out that you needed to use the toe hook and the nose attached to the bungee so that it couldn't over rotate because the hooks were too far back, you know, even parasol wing, all that kind of stuff. And you get it up there and you had to work. You really had to work to keep it in the air and find that thermal. And, you know, funny thing, and it got, as, as time went on, it got a bit heavier and it got a refurb and it got recovered and repainted and all this sort of stuff. And the weight kept going up and, um, you know, you'd land and you weren't sure if the tail boom was going to be straight or not or it was going to be parallel, you know, penduluming on the, on the you know, held together with the rudder cables, you know. And uh, a huge amount of fun, learned a lot about it, loved doing the big cross-up landings with it. And uh, it, it now has pride hanging up in my shed. Um, it hung up in barms for quite a lot of years there. And, uh, yeah, no, now it's, it's hanging up in the shed. And I, I, I get a real kick. Just, just seeing it there because I've had so much fun with it over the years. Um, you know, it's now uh, I don't know what thirty years old. What models now have you got on the build table? You covered a few. You've got the Catalinas. You know, you got the glider. What else is on the horizon? Some cool stuff. Um, so, Pawnee, Pawnee had a um, had a had a had a blackout. Uh, at Drilldry this year, we're at a regulator fail, and uh, the remaining elevator and aileron got it home and out of harm's way. So it's on the cards for a rebuild this year. It's um, it's getting a full refit. So we've we've gone through the gone through the motion, talked to a lot of people about a lot of stuff, and uh, it's getting a full refit. So complete strip refit, and it's back on the game. Uh, I've got stuff to clear out this year. I've got a couple of wind yields to make. I've got a couple of KA6 third scales to make. Um, they've got one P40 and one uh, one Corsair to make, and that clears the decks of everybody else's stuff. Then it's into 
the 22, I want to get the uh, get the last outboard wing panel into glass because I've made new outboard panels for it. Um, into glass, into primer, and hopefully guide coated and ready for ready for top coat. Um, all the rooms are made. My servo bays are all ready to go. Um, that's been a big one. So all, all these models now, because because basically after you finish with Boeing, you've basically started a, a little business in building these models, haven't you? I've got a pocket money business, and that's all it is. It's yeah. a pocket money business. I work a regular job as well, and uh, I allocate time each day to uh, to do stuff. Um, my original idea behind it was to, A, keep the stuff alive. People people come in, come and go in fads. You know, I, I worked retail in the hobby game for three or nearly three years, and even in that time, you got to see people that go from, all I build is ARF, I want something different, to I really can't be bothered, I don't have time, whatever, uh, I'll build an ARF. And maybe build's the wrong expression for it, assemble. Um, but either way, uh, you know, you move forward and you, you see what goes on. There's, uh, you know, some stuff that I remember flying with. I remember, you know, going to Swan Hill and see Murray Wills's um, beautiful 30% grub, all scratch build. He's 30%, um, sorry, 33% four vet. He's uh, swift. So um, mid COVID, um, you know, as uh, as you know, where, where Murray's life was heading, um, they became available to me, and I purchased them. So you know, I've made my first thirty uh, uh, percent grub, which is for me is a is a is a lifelong dream of owning one. You know, I've done the quarter scale one. I built a second one uh, last year, and uh, you know that'll move along as it goes. Um, you know, I had somebody approach me saying, oh, "I've got these molds for a glider. Uh, if you make me one, you can have the molds. Would you be interested?" Yeah, okay. So that'll come along. That's a, a third scale KA six. Um, I bought some molds for a, a third scale ASK 13. And, uh, you know, I've made the first straight glass one of each. And the next step is to go on and do a, uh, a glass and cork and see how they come out. So, you know, it's um, it's going to be wind out the mold, a couple of K6s out the mold, um, the Corsair and the um, P40. How long does the mold last? Well, it comes down to how you treat them. Uh, and, and obviously how well they've been made. So, you know, there's, uh, for example, there's, there's one mold I have there that's been absolutely fantastic. It doesn't give me any dramas at all. There's no undercuts. There's no anything at all like that. That'll be comfortable for, I don't know, let's say um, 100, maybe 150 parts. And it comes down to what they're made out of too. So epoxy tooling tends to last longer than polyester, but it also costs one-third of the price. So it comes down to that. You know, I've got a set of moulds there that have been full of air bubbles. That you know, in general handlay, it's been okay. Nothing's happened. They've only made a couple of parts. But when you start digging for stuff and you start looking for stuff, um, like I have with these moulds, I've found lots of air entrapment. So I've had to go back and fix the moulds and go down that process. And how many do I want to make out of it determines what kind of a repair I do on the mould. If I want to get to full swing production on them and do 150 parts out of a mould, uh, then you've got to go and do it all properly. If it's a, and by that I was saying, you know, you, you use your tooling gel coat, your um, everything else that goes with it, and you polish it all back up, and it looks like it never ever happened. If it's one part, then you may use plastic bond, for example, and that might be good for fifteen parts. 
before either the plastic bond falls out, something gets stuck, or you've got to go back and fix it again. So it just comes down to what you want to do with it. You know, I'm, I'm looking at a, I've got a mould that I need to make for a model that's, uh, ironically, it's an IS-28. We talked about it earlier in the piece. Um, it's uh, 3.8 metres long. Now, I, if I went down the polyester path, I'm not a big fan of it as far as gel coating and laying up moulds. doesn't do it for me. Um, I was brought up around epoxy with um, pattern making and tooling blue gel coat and making panographing tools and all that kind of stuff. And um, so for me, it would be an epoxy mould. Um, it's going to be heavy. It's uh, I've got a block and tackle from the ceiling of the shed to be able to lift it. Um, it's going to need a specialised trolley to sit on. I haven't even decided where I'm going to store it yet. Like all my other moulds, I store them under the house because it's nice ambient temperature all year round. They hang from the roof on, or hang from the floor on chains so that, you know, any vermin that gets in there, they're not going to get inside your moulds and cause scratches and everything else and make a nest of them. Um, so in these moulds, I haven't quite worked that bit out yet. And it's whether I want to take the leap of faith and, in, and the investment that goes with it, because they're not cheap. Um, to maybe make two or three, or do I just fly what I've got? Oh, no, you're going to keep on building. You, you can't sit still. You're going to keep on building. Well, it's, it's, where, it's where I decide to go. And, and how, how, how long do I want to invest in each project? I mean, my, my ASW22 has been 12 years. <laughs> That's but it hasn't been continuous. You know, I'm one of a couple of years where I'll build something else. Like I, uh, I did a full... Uh, a full re-engineer and rebuild on the Hempel K6. Um, there were things about it I didn't like, and I chased it. I mean, I've, I've put together two of them now, and the second one's very different to the first one from what I learned from the first one. Things like, you know, I went to go inside the wings haven, and you put your, put your thumb straight through the sheeting. Now, keep in mind that my kits were very, very early in the production run, so they're very different to what you get in today's run. Um, they've, they've grown and developed as well. Um, yeah, so, you know, that's that's on the cards to be done. I really want to get the 22 finished. I've got just about everything I need for it. Um, I've only got aileron servos to, which I finally decided what I'm going to use. Um, I've got all my looms made. I've got all my air brakes in. I've got the centre wing section into glass and into the second last primer, I'm going to call it. You know, I still want to guide coat it and do all that kind of stuff and get it as flat and as clean as I can. The outboards have got to go into glass. I've got one already in glass. The other one's got to be done. And then high build primer, rub it all back, and then free the ailerons and hinge them all. There's uh, 27 hinges per wing from robot quarter scale hinges. Jeez. So when you think about it, you've got um, you've got the center, you've got the first the first flap. There's three trailing inch flight controls. Is 1.8 meters long. Second one is 2.8 meters long. Um, and then you've got, sorry, uh, big button, 2.2 metres long, so it's a four-metre centre panel on either side. And then you've got the outboard panel at 2.8 metres long, um, which is running three servos on each one. Um, each of the flaps runs two servos. So you've got logistical stuff to sort out there. I've done the wiring looms are pretty much good to go. Um, the pockets are all in there ready for the servos to go in. What radio, what radio are you using? Look, I run the I run the Futaba 18 SZ. I've been very, very happy with it. Um, I use two of them, and 
as part of my upgrades for, for example, the Pauline and everything big that I'm playing with now, they've got to be telemetry. They've got to have altitude on them. It's it's becoming really uh, really critical with playing with big stuff. Um, you know, I was plotting out a big a big caribou project, and I decided that maybe it's just a little bit too big. You know, Dave's done his caribou, and that looks fantastic. And you know what? All you're doing is 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 doing the same thing that somebody else has done. So I've been a little bit of a different direction. And there's a is is a cool project coming up, which is going to be a truckload of fun. And uh, think porno proportions, but a little bit bigger. Yeah, okay. and it's not a porno. Cool yeah. Oh well, we're going to have to stay tuned for that one. But there's going to be a lot of fun. You're always having fun. It sounds like you're. Ta- are you taking orders for models, or you don't do that a lot? It depends upon it depends on where my shopping list is at. Um, so my my hobby is there to fund my hobby. That's that's all it's there to do. It's um it's never going to be a mainstream thing. I did I did think about it, but the reality of it is, for what you charge and the amount of hours you put into it, realistically, you're breaking even at the best. Yeah. So, you know, um, yeah, and that, that's kind of where it's at. It's, 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 for me, it's more about keeping, keeping people building, keeping them interested. You know, the, um, the Catalina one has been a fantastic one. It's been an adventure. We've got the, the, the DRB composites Catalina build, uh, running. And then in the background, what people don't get to see is that everybody else is in on the chat that's, that's involved in the projects and everybody shares their knowledge and, and what they do. And ideas and stuff. And if you can keep people motivated and keep them out there doing stuff in the shed, then it's a positive thing. You know, this year's Shepparton was was good to see new projects come out. Mm. You know, you know, Mother Nature took its own course, but at the end of the day, what I did get to see was some really cool stuff. Um, and that that's always an inspirational thing too. You know, in days gone by, you go to the events and you go home and all you want to do is build. Mm. I always say that people buy models and invest invest their money in the hobby after they've had a great day out flying. You know, it's uh, I got a mate of mine. And he always said to him, "Oh, you're going to go to that event, and then the following week you're going to buy another plane to add to your collection of planes." And you've already got like close to a hundred. But um, so that's just generally, generally happens now. All this talk of uh, models uh, and that you've had and you've worked on and stuff like that, it brings me to the final question, which is a question that everybody can't wait to hear the answer for and is sometimes a difficult question to ask most people, but it might be an easy one for you. And that question is, what has been your all-time favourite model? Oh, no, that's a very difficult question. It's a good one. I like it. Um, oh, it's a standard question we've got here. Say, that's, we always end up with this no, question. I've got to say at the moment, it's my big porno. It brings me a huge amount of enjoyment carving big holes in the sky. It's my favourite plane. Um, I'm going to say that it's it's it, to me it's no longer an ARF because good luck fitting any parts of it to the original airframe um, and making it work. But it, it's probably been my most favourite. Um, you know, my my in, in days gone by, my primary was a was a huge amount of enjoyment. Flew that for a lot of years. Um, and you kind of go from there. Well, I reckon that uh, it is a good choice because I think it's not often that we brand ourselves with a model, but when I hear your name, the first thing I think of is Pawnee. And so (laughs) if you didn't pick that model, I'd be pretty damn disappointed because I think 
you know, I'm putting my, I'm, you know, I'm a marketing guru. You know, I put my marketing hat on. And I go, yeah, your brand is that pawnee and the big pawnee because we all know who owns that model. You know, that's 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 you. So uh, I hope that it lives on for many, many more years. And it's one of those things. And I've mentioned this a number of times. Having a model like that brings you enjoyment, but it also brings other people enjoyment in seeing something like that, that, that special kind of project. And and I always encourage people that have got that special project to share it with people by taking it to Shepherd and Mammoth or something and letting people see it and experience it because that gives everybody enjoyment, which you do anyway. So I've seen it at multiple different events. So well done. Well, look, thank you very much for that. It's um. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And it's, um, if you can, like I said, if you can share that fun, it's a damn good thing. Well, that's a good note to end on, Ross Bathy. It's been a pleasure having you on the Flat Out RC podcast. You've been on the on the invite list for a very long period of time. And episode 122, we made it happen. So well done. All right. Thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. About to leave. Already packing. Come with me. I'm not really asking. We'll get away. Another episode of the Flat Out RC podcast done and dusted. Promise next week I'll probably have a better voice. Uh, Big thank you to Ross Bathy for joining us to to share his story. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, We covered a lot of ground, so I hope you got a bit of entertainment value out of it. Maybe learned a thing or two as well. Uh, I am really can't wait to get back to flying. Uh, my arm injury is improving. I went to the physio today and he said, I can move my arm. The mobility's not too, too bad. I just don't have any strength. And I can't lift anything heavy until Christmas. So uh, I do have friends that are willing to carry my planes out for me. So I might might get them to help me. But anyway, the weather's not too great. My flying field's underwater at the moment, so I can't get out there. Good day. It's a good time for float flying. If you've got a float plane, get it out there and have a bit of fun. Anyway, we'll be back next week. I do have a guest lined up, so we will be back next week. So thanks for joining me once again. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and the Instagram page and the YouTube channel and the, and the Facebook page as well. And just join the Flat Out RC family. It's a big family. Now looking back, eyes on the freeway, Bonnie and Clyde, a classic cliche. We're on the run, this is what we wait.